Chapter twenty three of the Stones of Venice, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daniel Fraser. The Stones of Venice, Volume One, by John Ruskin. Chapter twenty three The Edge and Fillet. The decoration of the angle by various forms of chamfer and bead, as above described, is the quietest method we can employ. Too quiet when great energy is to be given to the moulding, and impossible when, instead of a bold angle, we have to deal with a small projecting edge, like C in figure 51. In such cases, we may employ a decoration far ruder and easier in its simplest conditions than the bead, far more effective when not used in too great profusion, and of which the complete developments are the source of mouldings at once the most picturesque and most serviceable which the Gothic builders invented. The gunwales of the Venetian heavy barges, being liable to somewhat rough collision with each other and with the walls of the streets, are generally protected by a piece of timber which projects in the form of the fillet a figure fifty one but which like all other fillets may if we so choose be considered as composed of two angles or edges which the natural and most wholesome love of the venetian boatmen for ornament otherwise strikingly evidenced by their painted sails and glittering flag vanes will not suffer to remain wholly undecorated. The rough service of these timbers, however, will not admit of rich ornament, and the boat-builder usually contents himself with cutting a series of notches in each edge, one series alternating with the other, as represented at 1, plate 9. In that simple ornament, not as confined to Venetian boats, but as representative of a general human instinct to hack at an edge, demonstrated by all schoolboys and all idle possessors of pen-knives or other cutting instruments on both sides of the Atlantic. In that rude Venetian gunwale, I say, is the germ of all the ornament which has touched, with its rich successions of angular shadow, the portals and archivolts of nearly every building of importance, from the North Cape to the Straits of Messina. Nor, are the modifications of the first suggestion intricate. All that is generic in their character may be seen on plate 9 at a glance. Taking a piece of stone instead of timber, and enlarging the notches until they meet each other, we have the condition 2, which is a moulding from the tomb of the Doge Andrea Dandolo in St. Mark's. Now, considering this moulding as composed of two decorated edges, each edge will be reduced by the meeting of the notches to a series of four-sided pyramids as marked off by the dotted lines which the notches here being shallow will be shallow pyramids but by deepening the notches we get them as at three with a profile a more or less steep this moulding i shall always call the plain dogtooth it is used in profusion in the Venetian and Veronese Gothic, generally set with its front to the spectator, as here at three, but its effect may be much varied by
by placing it obliquely, fore and profile as at B, or with one side horizontal, five and profile C. Of these three conditions, three and five are exactly the same in reality, only differently placed. But in four, the pyramid is obtuse, and the inclination of its base variable, the upper side of it being always kept vertical. It is comparatively rare. Of the three, the last, five, is far the most brilliant in effect, giving in the distance a zigzag form to the high light on it, and a full sharp shadow below. The use of this shadow is sufficiently seen by figure seven in this plate, the arch on the left, the number beneath it, in which these levelled dog teeth, with a small interval between each, are employed to set off by their vigour the delicacy of floral ornament above. This arch is the side of a niche from the tomb of Can Signoria della Scala at Verona, and the value, as well as the distant expression of its dogtooth, may be seen by referring to Prout's beautiful drawing of this tomb in his Sketches in France and Italy. I have before observed that this artist never fails of seizing the true and leading expression of whatever he touches. He has made this ornament the leading feature of the niche, expressing it, as in distance it is only expressible, by a zigzag. The reader may perhaps be surprised at my speaking so highly of this drawing, if he take the pains to compare Prout's symbolism of the work on the niche with the facts as they stand here in plate nine. But the truth is that Prout has rendered the effect of the monument on the mind of the passer-by, the effect it was intended to have on every man who turned the corner of the street beneath it. And in this sense there is actually more truth and likeness in Prout's translation than in my facsimile, made diligently by peering into the details from a ladder. I do not say that all the symbolism in Prout's sketch is the best possible, but it is the best which any architectural draftsman has yet invented, and in its application to special subjects it always shows curious internal evidence that the sketch has been made on the spot, and that the artist tried to draw what he saw, not to invent an attractive subject. I shall notice other instances of this hereafter. The dog-tooth, employed in this simple form, is, however, rather a foil for other ornament than itself a satisfactory or generally available decoration. It is, however, easy to enrich it as we choose. Taking up its simple form at three, and describing the arcs marked by the dotted lines upon its sides, and cutting a small triangular cavity between them, we shall leave its ridges somewhat rudely representative of four leaves, as at eight, which is the section and front view of one of the Venetian stone cornices described above, chapter 14-4, the figure eight being here put in the hollow of the gutter. The dog-tooth is put on the outer lower truncation, and is actually in position as figure five, but, being always looked up to, is to the spectator as three, and always rich and effective. The dog-teeth are perhaps most frequently expanded to the width of figure nine. As in nearly all other ornaments previously described, so in this. We have only to deepen the Italian cutting 
and we shall get the northern type. If we make the original pyramid somewhat steeper, and instead of lightly incising, cut it through, so as to have the leaves held only by their points to the base, we shall have the English dogtooth, somewhat vulgar in its piquancy, when compared with French mouldings of a similar kind. It occurs, I think, on one house in Venice, in the Campo St. Polo, but the ordinary moulding, with light incisions, is frequent in archivolts and architraves, as well as in the roof cornices. This being the simplest treatment of the pyramid, figure 10, from the refectory of Wenlock Abbey, is an example of the simplest decoration of the recesses or inward angles between the pyramids. That is to say, of a simple hacked edge, like one of those in figure 2 the cuts being taken up and decorated instead of the points. Each is worked into a small trefoiled arch, with an incision round it to mark its outline, and another slight incision above, expressing the angle of the first cutting. I said that the teeth in figure 7 had in distance the effect of a zigzag. In figure 10, this zigzag effect is seized upon and developed, but with the easiest and roughest work the angular incision being a mere limiting line, like that described in 9 of the last chapter. But hence, the farther steps to every condition of Norman ornament are self-evident. I do not say that all of them arose from development of the dog-tooth in this manner, many being quite independent inventions and uses of zigzag lines. Still, they may all be referred to this simple type as their root and representative that is to say, the mere hack of the Venetian gunwale, with a limiting line following the resultant zigzag. Figure 11 is a singular and much more artificial condition, cast in brick, from the church of the Frari, and given here only for future reference. Figure 12, resulting from a fillet with the cuts on each of its edges interrupted by a bar, is a frequent Venetian moulding, and of great value but the plain or leaved dog-teeth have been the favourites, and that to such a degree that even the Renaissance architects took them up, and the best bit of Renaissance design in Venice, the side of the ducal palace next the Bridge of Sighs, owes great part of its splendour to its foundation, faced with large flat dog-teeth, each about a foot wide in the base, with their points truncated, and alternating with cavities which are their own negatives or casts. One other form of the dog-tooth is of great importance in northern architecture, that produced by oblique cuts slightly curved, as in the margin, figure 56. It is susceptible of the most fantastic and endless decoration, each of the resulting leaves being, in the early porches of Rouen and Lisieux, hollowed out and worked into branching tracery and at Bourges, for distant effect, worked into plain leaves, or bold bony processes with knobs at the points, and near the spectator, into crouching demons and broad-winged owls, and other fancies and intricacies, innumerable and inexpressible. Thus much is enough to be noted respecting edge decoration. We were next to consider the fillet. Professor Willis has noticed an ornament, which he has called the Venetian dentil, as the most universal ornament in its own district 
that ever I met with, but has not noticed the reason for its frequency. It is nevertheless highly interesting. The whole architecture of Venice is architecture of incrustation. This has not been enough noticed in its peculiar relation to that of the rest of Italy. There is, indeed, much encrusted architecture throughout Italy, in elaborate ecclesiastical work, but there is more which is frankly of brick, or thoroughly of stone. But the Venetian habitually encrusted his work with nacre. He built his houses, even the meanest, as if he had been a shellfish, roughly inside, mother of pearl on the surface. He was content, perforce, to gather the clay of the Brenta banks, and bake it into brick for his substance of wall. But he overlaid it with the wealth of ocean, with the most precious foreign marbles. You might fancy early Venice one wilderness of brick, which a petrifying sea had beaten upon till it coated it with marble. At first a dark city, washed white by the sea-foam. And I told you before that it was also a city of shafts and arches, and that its dwellings were raised upon continuous arcades, among which the sea-waves wandered. Hence the thoughts of its builders were early and constantly directed to the incrustation of arches. In figure 57 I have given two of these Byzantine stilted arches. The one on the right, A, as they now too often appear in its bare brickwork, that on the left, with its alabaster covering, literally marble defensive armour, riveted together in pieces, which follow the contours of the building. Now, on the wall, these pieces are mere flat slabs cut to the arch outline, but under the soffit of the arch, the marble mail is curved, often cut singularly thin, like bent tiles, and fitted together so that the pieces would sustain each other even without rivets. It is, of course, desirable that this thin sub-arch of marble should project enough to sustain the facing of the wall, and the reader will see, in figure 57, that its edge forms a kind of narrow band round the arch, B, a band which the least enrichment would render a valuable decorative feature. Now, this band is, of course, if the soffit pieces project a little beyond the face of the wall pieces, a mere fillet like the wooden gunwale in plate 9, and the question is how to enrich it most wisely. It might easily have been dog-toothed, but the Byzantine architects had not invented the dog-tooth, and would not have used it here if they had, for the dog-tooth cannot be employed alone, especially on so principal an angle as this of the main arches, without giving to the whole building a peculiar look, which I cannot otherwise describe than as being to the eye exactly what untempered acid is to the tongue. The mere dog-tooth is an acid moulding, and can only be used in certain mingling with others, to give them piquancy, never alone. What, then, will be the next easiest method of giving interest to the fillet? Simply, to make the incision square instead of sharp, and to leave equal intervals of the square edge between them. Figure 58 is one of the curved pieces of arch armour, with its edge thus treated, one side only being done at the bottom, to show the simplicity and ease of the work. 
This ornament gives force and interest to the edge of the arch, without in the least diminishing its quietness. Nothing was ever, nor could be ever invented, fitter for its purpose or more easily cut. From the arch it therefore found its way into every position where the edge of a piece of stone projected, and became, from its constancy of occurrence in the latest Gothic as well as the earliest Byzantine, most truly deserving of the name of the Venetian dentil. Its complete intention is now, however, only to be seen in the pictures of Gentile Bellini and Vittor Carpaccio. For, like most of the rest of the mouldings of Venetian buildings, it was always either gilded or painted, often both, gold being laid on the faces of the dentils, and their recesses coloured alternately red and blue. Observe, however, that the reason above given for the universality of this ornament was by no means the reason of its invention. The Venetian dentil is a particular application, consequent on the encrusted character of Venetian architecture, of the general idea of dentil, which had been originally given by the Greeks, and realised both by them and the Byzantines in many laborious forms, long before there was need of them for arch armour and the lower half of plate nine will give some idea of the conditions which occur in the Romanesque of Venice, distinctly derived from the classical dentil, and of the gradual transition to the more convenient and simple type, the running hand dentil, which afterwards became the characteristic of Venetian Gothic. Number thirteen is the common dentiled cornice, which occurs repeatedly in St. Mark's, and as late as the 13th century, a reduplication of it, forming the abacai of the capitals of the Piazzetta shafts. Figure 15 is perhaps an earlier type, perhaps only one of more careless workmanship, from a Byzantine ruin in the Rio di Cafoscari, and it is interesting to compare it with figure 14 from the Cathedral of Vienne in South France. Figure 17 from St. Mark's and 18 from the apse of Murano are two very early examples in which the future true Venetian dentil is already developed in method of execution, though the object is still only to imitate the classical one, and a rude imitation of the bead is joined with it in figure 17. Number 16 indicates two examples of experimental forms, the uppermost from the tomb of Mastino della Scala at Verona, the lower from a door in Venice, I believe, of the 13th century. 19 is a more frequent arrangement, chiefly found in cast brick, and connecting the dentils with the dog teeth. 20 is a form introduced richly in the later Gothic, but of rare occurrence until the latter half of the 13th century. I shall call it the gabled dentil. It is found in the greatest profusion in sepulchral Gothic, associated with several slight variations from the usual dentil type, of which number 21, from the tomb of Pietro Bonaro, may serve as an example. All the forms given in plate 9 are of not unfrequent occurrence, varying much in size and depth, according to the expression of the work in which they occur, generally increasing in size in late work, the earliest dentils are seldom more than an inch or an inch and a half long, 
the fully developed dentil of the later Gothic is often as much as four or five in length by one and a half in breadth. But they are all somewhat rare compared to the true or armor dentil above described. On the other hand, there are one or two unique conditions which will be noted in the buildings where they occur. The ducal palace furnishes three anomalies in the arch, dogtooth, and dentil. It has a hyperbolic arch, as noted above, chapter 10.15. It has a double-fanged dogtooth in the rings of the spiral shafts on its angles. And finally, it has a dentil with concave sides, of which the section and two of the blocks, real size, are given in plate 14. The labour of obtaining this difficult profile has, however, been thrown away, for the effects of the dentil at ten feet distance is exactly the same as that of the usual form, and the reader may consider the dogtooth and dentil in that plate as fairly representing the common use of them in the Venetian Gothic. I am aware of no other form of fillet decoration requiring notice. In the northern Gothic, the fillet is employed chiefly to give severity or flatness to mouldings supposed to be too much rounded, and is therefore generally plain. It is itself an ugly moulding, and when thus employed, is merely a foil for others, of which, however, it at last usurped the place, and became one of the most painful features in the debased Gothic both of Italy and the North. End of chapter 23 Recording by Daniel Fraser